I was reading an article today about the difference between glue and grease for vision. And it's really similar to what you said about like the glue is like what is like our historic our history, the good things that we do. And some people like to live in the glue. They're like, this is what we're doing. This is what we've done. This is where we are. Why are you laughing at me? <laughs> yeah, I, I can't imagine. Like, Sick, right? And then there's the grease, which is like, but what's next? What's the next problem we're going to solve? How are we going to move forward? What are we going to do? And so thinking about how, yes, we embrace, I think, especially in higher education, we embrace our history and we come from long heritage and we've always done things this way and that's the glue. But then this change that's being sort of thrust upon us because of COVID and all of the things that are going on is grease to move forward and solve problems for different groups of students and different, you know, cohorts and and populations. And so I love that. Hi, I'm Rachel Phillips-Buck, VP for Student Success at Ferris Resources. You guys have joined us for Cap and Gown. Joined by Matt Boisvert today. Hello, Matt. Good afternoon. Hello. Um... There's a couple of kind of monumental things going on today. (laughs) So actually this whole week, today is 2-22-22. And our daughters were supposed to go to school dressed in... Tutus. (laughs) But also central time... In 21 minutes, it will be 2.22 on 2.22.22. So that's exciting. So those of you who join us not live, you'll know exactly what was going on at this time and place. Missed out, yeah, they missed out. Um, also, I think tomorrow, I think I read this. So two, tomorrow will be 2.23.22, which will be a palindrome. That's true. Okay. It's a great way for us to start. There you go. go. Um, you and I have had a lot of travel. So the last couple of weeks we've had to cancel, but it has been so nice to see all of you and spend time with you and listen to what's happening on your campus and hug you and just be close. That has been really delightful. Um, so many of you that we, we, so you and I were at two different conferences And so many of the people I ran into were saying how much they appreciate this podcast, how they spend time with us every week. And that's really nice because we hope that it's useful to you guys. So it's always really good to hear that it is. So I I thought I I was really surprised how many people said that they listened to it later, Mm -hmm. you know, as they're driving. And so it's great. Yeah. Cap and gown. I mean, this is 41 episodes of cap and gown, Rachel. And, and as we talk about change, and there's a, there's a whole conversation we're going to have today about change. But when I think about when we started doing podcasts, for you, that was a big change. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's a whole lot uh, that has that has happened. 41 episodes of cap and gown. Hey, do you that, remember that it's 41 or did you look that up? I think Shauna chatted that. Okay. Cause I can never keep track, but you said it like you're like every week counting, which I was super impressed with, but you, Shauna knows. She knows. Uh, Okay. So our roadmap today is our theme for 2022 is changed. We're going to spend the majority of our time on that. 
we have two different books. Um, this is the one that we're pulling from mostly. It's called Change by John Cotter. He's also written a lot of articles that we're going to be talking about today as well. Um, and I'm going to make a case, continued case every week, continued case for why change is a really good place for us to spend our time and energy this year. So we will do that. Um, also, we're at the point in change where we're talking about a vision, building a vision, why it's important, how to communicate it, thinking about resistance to a vision. So we're going to spend our time on that. But as always, I would like for us to start with um, State of the Union. And Matt, you know, so you gave me some of these articles yesterday, and I have been reading them out loud <laughs> um, a lot because they're so moving and they're so good. And I just want to get through them without crying. So hopefully I'm desensitized enough that I will be able to do that. But people are being so awesome in higher education. Well, what I like about these articles is that it is about a, a exactly what we're talking about, the transition mm -hmm. from this kind of threat assessment, how we have to manage in this time of, of threats and, and weariness and how do we stay secure to being opportunity focused and, and doing really great things. So yeah, um, it's awesome. Okay. So the first article is coming out of Long Beach City College um, and the University of South Carolina. These are two schools in California that are launching a new program focused on increasing college access for young people who've been associated with gangs. So the goal of the program is to help 300 prospective college students with gang connections enroll and succeed at Long Beach City College. They're giving them a whole bunch of really specialized supports because, because it, what they've done is exactly our student success funnel. They found a population. They're like, what do we need to connect with you? How are we going to solve your distinctive problems? And then how are we going to have outcomes that are going to change your life, right? right. So um, Adrian Hurata, an assistant professor of education, was like, hey, if we can find 200 people, we will change the lives of generations of, of students, um, it says that's 200 people fewer who will be less involved in the adult or juvenile justice system. It can have a cascading effect in a way that will be really transformative for so many people. So she goes on to say this program is for um, students 16 to 24. They lead them through the enrollment process. They have a career advisor and specialized mental health counseling. They have coaches and mentors. Um, they're giving them internships. This whole program is funded by almost a million dollar grant from the U.S. Department of Education. It's the first grant of its kind. This college also has a justice scholars program, which is for formerly incarcerated students, which is also also awesome. They just started last year. Um, just California has a really large po population of gang associated students. And so they're like, we just have to solve this problem for them. So here are some interesting things as you're talking about the solve and connect piece. They've said, first of all, a lot of these students have felony uh, felonies on their criminal records. And so they can't work in certain jobs. So their career counselor has to be super clear on the professions that are legal, legally open to them in the state of California. And then yeah. if they want to be somewhere else, like what are other states that you could go do that profession with a felony? Also, they talk a lot about students wrestling with shame and doubt and feeling stigmatized. Um, so they're pairing them with mentors who have had the same experience to say, 
you can rise above this. You don't have to feel ashamed. They also talk about visible markers like gang tattoos that they're like, Hey, we're going to help you get rid of those. If you don't want them anymore, we're going to figure out how, you know, we'll get you connected with someone who can get, I just love the thoughtfulness of like, what are all of the challenges this cohort faces? Awesome. We're going to give them a person who's going to walk alongside of them. And then we're going to solve all of those problems. It's just, I love it. Well, what I love about that is for those of us who work in higher education, hopefully we all believe it is transformational. Right. It can change a individual's life and change the whole future for their family. And so for them to say, yes, these are the, these, this is a population we want to serve, not only students, those who are involved in gangs, but also those who are incarcerated. What's the plan yeah. to get them out and, and to be valuable members of society? And it's such a great example of upstream thinking. Yeah, like okay. we, we, they're saying you're going to be incarcerated. You were going to have to pay for this. How about if we back up and just help them get a college degree with a career that they can be really proud of? So I yeah, love that. Yeah. Also, Matt, it reminds me, you and I heard a story um, at a conference this week about a college that was in the middle of an inner city neighborhood and they got a grant for like $45,000 worth of computers to be able to teach their students how to do, I forget what the major was. It's coding. Coding. Okay. Yeah. So they were so excited to have this grant and they have all these computers and they're like, we're going to be able to teach our students so well. And somebody from the neighborhood, two young men from the neighborhood broke in and stole all the computers. I think they came back like three times to get all the computers. And the man who was telling us about it was like, everybody was so mad and the police are involved in all this stuff. And they want to interview me and they're expecting me. Tell them, tell us like how angry you are and how these people stole from your students and whatever. And he was so, it was such a good reframe. He said, Hey, you know what? Those guys know this is a place of great value. This institution is a place of great value. They took the wrong thing, right? They thought it was the computers that made us like super important. They took the wrong thing. If they'll come back, I'll give them something of real value. If they will bring back our computers, we will get them into our program. And they were right. This is a place where you can make money and change lives, but they did it the wrong way. So come back, give us our computers, and then we're going to set you up for it. I was just like, it was just such an awesome way to say, what are we trying to do here? Are we trying to be mad? Are we trying to say like, these guys know this is a really valuable place. And there's something different about this place, which really truly is an oasis in that neighborhood, there's something valuable there. And, and for him to be so strong and and his voice, if I, if I were, well, certainly one of the, one of the guys who, who stole the computers, but anyone in that neighborhood to be like, okay, this is, I need to think about that place differently. Yeah. He had such compassion and he was like, Hey, they're smart, right? Like we're in an inner city neighborhood where there's not a lot of value to be grabbed. Why wouldn't, I totally understand why you think that would be a good deal, but I can do you one better, right? Yeah. Come back and we're going to do you one better. So I just love that. It was just a great example of that reframe. Okay. Good news for our colleges endowments boomed in 2021. So lots of details about this, but um, a lot of endowments did really, really well. It's pretty crazy. of institutions report that an endowment uh, report an endowment worth more than $1 billion. So 1 billion, 
19 percent of institutions have an endowment worth more than one billion okay um one in ten Institutions said their endowment is worth between 501 million and 1 billion. More than half, 57%, said their endowment is between 51 million and 500 million. And then 13% of institutions said their endowment was valued at 50 million or less. So that's a good way to understand that bell curve. Of the increases in college endowment, um, the 19% that have a billion or more captured 83.7% of the total increase. So basically wow. the big guys did awesome. And then depending on where you fall on there, you saw an increase, but not likely as big as if you're investing a billion dollars, right? Okay. Well, there's a lot to unpack in that, Rachel. I, I think endowment managers are very important to university, having mm-hmm. someone who really is savvy at investments. This last year, there were a lot of opportunities uh, when, when you look at the markets and where you're invested. So just thinking for our schools about, well, if you didn't see a 30% increase, then do you have, um, you know, do you have an endowment manager or someone really keeping watch over that? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, the next one, oh, this is another one about students being told that they got a great scholarship when they did This is, your, this is your, your worst nightmare. My worst nightmare. So, so an email goes out or a letter goes out and says, an email. Congrat- can, which email is the problem? Email is the problem. That's right. 57 students got a notification um, from Central Michigan University on January 24th. 21st saying that they got a full ride scholarship. Then they had to send an email that says, Hey, sorry, I guess they called. They said they called all the students and they're like, Hey, sorry, you got that. My mistake. We're really sorry. And the student said, getting that phone call, my heart sank. I was second guessing even going to CMU. I was just angry and disappointed in what they did to me. Then the school is like, hey, we're going to make that right. We're going to give you the scholarship. So they're giving those 57 students a scholarship uh, equivalent to a full uh, tuition scholarship. And the student was like, it was such an emotional roller coaster. I've been up and down and sad and mad and angry and confused and happy. (laughs) So I love it's just interesting to see how different schools and obviously based on the magnitude and all that stuff, you're going to make different decisions. But it's just such a joyful thing to be able to say to those students, like, okay, come on, right? Yeah, it's one thing when it's 3,000. Yeah. When it's 57 or 56, you can manage it. Yeah, that would be hard. Okay, I have two more for you. These are my, I've saved the best for last. So um, there's an article in Higher Dive by a college president, Marvid, Marvin Krislov. He's the president of Pace University in New York. He was the president of Oberlin College. Before that, he was the general counsel at the University of Michigan. He, every year, teaches a U100 course, so a first-year seminar course. I love that. Let's just, just, hold on, we could just park on that. Hold there for a minute. Every president should do this. Why are they not? You would learn so much teaching U100. Yeah. And Matt, you know, you and I are going to talk about with vision, like who are the people who understand the changes that need to be made? Well, let's talk about the credibility that comes from a president who has 25 students in his class that are representative of the kinds of students you're recruiting and serving. 
and the way he would learn about what it's like to be in the classroom with those students, the good things, the hard things, the mate, right? It's just every, I love that idea. And I will also say my encouragement, although I don't think it is the natural inclination, my encouragement would be that you don't stack that class with your brightest and best presidential scholars. Because that would be what you would want to do. Absolutely. But that it would be representative of the students that you're admitting. So I would want it to be Pell eligible, ethnicity, gender, academic preparedness. I want this to be a microcosm of what you're admitting. And if you're admitting 80% Pell eligible and underprepared academically, that's what I want in the president's class. Right. So I love it. I think it's a such a great idea. He is basically coming back out of that experience every semester and just saying, here's what I'm reminded of. And his um, article is about how you have to check in with your people. The students that we're teaching are people and you have to be present for them. Um, You have to be ready to help. So you have to know who's struggling and you have to avoid criticism and disappointment and just ask, how can I support you? which I love. Um, and then also they have to, we, we have to emphasize the importance of the work we're doing. Students and staff engage in work that has meaning. They want to be useful. They want to matter. Helping people see the importance of their efforts, work, a project, a course will help them focus, engage, and be productive. So that's a president I could follow. That's awesome. I think every, I mean, you, you think of any service company, the president ought to go and do that, meet, meet the customer, be there. In higher education, it's so powerful. Yeah. I mean, it's exactly what you said, to understand those students, understand what's going on, like in the, in this, the rhythm of the academic year, right? So just to see them when they come in and they're trying to make transition, and then as they get closer to, to Thanksgiving, and for a president to be mindful of, Oh, right. These are the real life things that are happening. So I'd love for, for those of you joining us, um, it'd just be really interesting to hear your thoughts on, you know, if, has your president done something like this? Has she um, joined students in the classroom? Uh, what would that do if, if they did? Yeah. You know, we talked about this in quarantine, right? Where we're like, the president should be meeting with students and listening to what they're doing. And my friend Kate at PBA was like, Hey, you got to eat the quarantine lunch. Like you have got to have the experience that your students are having so that you understand what's going on and how to address that. So I, I just love it. Um, So Rachel, will you, will you go back over who was, this is the president of, of which. Yeah. So Pace university in New York. Yeah, of course. It's great school. Okay. I love that one. Um, Okay. Now this is the one that I'm going to have a little trouble with. So just stick with me, you guys, because it is so good. I'm really tempted to read you the whole article. I'm going to try to like cut out parts that I don't think are as relevant, but I love this. It's called a pathway out of intergenerational poverty. So a group of high school seniors from the Fort Worth Independent School District went on what they thought was an ordinary campus tour at Paul Quinn College on Thursday, which is a historically black institution. They ate lunch in the cafeteria, went to mock classes and attended basketball games on the Dallas campus. But the tour took a turn for the unexpected. 
Each of the 408 students selected by their high school principals left with acceptance letters to the historically black college for fall 2022, not just for themselves, but also for two of their family members. Awesome. So they told them, hey, we have an announcement. And this student, Trenton Gardner, was like, I didn't think it was going to be this big. The surprise <laughs> announcement is the first phase of a new admissions approach at Paul Quinn. Starting in the fall of 2023, any admitted student with a 3.0 GPA or higher who is eligible for the Pell Grant, which is the financial aid, can select two family members to start college with them. The goal is to create this experience that says to all family members, all of the students coming behind you, all of the community members, college is for you. College is for all of you. And the only special thing you have to do is work hard. Paul Quinn's student body is approximately 97% Black and Latina. The majority of students, 80%, are eligible for the Pell Grant. It's also one of nine federally funded work colleges in the country and the first in an urban area. So that means that students have to hold a full-time job as, alongside them doing their studies. They've had a little bit of enrollment trouble, so it fell from 440 students in 2020. Um, that's down from 550 students in 2019. But the president said this was not done to improve enrollment. It was done to improve lives. Paul Quinn is showing students their dreams can be realized and their families are also welcome to come and learn alongside of them. From Sorrell's perspective, the philosophy behind this new admissions approach is a simple numbers game, sending three people in a family to college where they can gain skills that lead them to higher paying jobs will have a greater financial impact on families than just sending one person to college. Our goal is to eradicate intergenerational poverty, Sorrell says, and what's the best, best uh, pathway out of poverty? If it's a career opportunity education provides you, then plurality would help even more. So these college um, like family members are taking courses online. They're getting credentialing and upskills. It says he noted that first generation college graduates and those from low income backgrounds can sometimes feel responsible for lifting their entire family out of poverty, which weighs heavily on them. We set up first generation college students to be heroes, and that's a lot of pressure, he said. The reality is that wealthy students aren't expected to lift up, lift up their whole family. So allowing students' families to enroll with them will help them share and alleviate some of that emotional burden. He also believes many low-income students are made to feel like they need to distance themselves from their families and communities in order to succeed, a notion he sees as detrimental to students' mental health. He believes this new initiative sends the opposite message. There is something philosophically wrong with telling people that your only path out is to leave the people and the communities that produced you. Exactly right. That's so good. So he goes on to say, imagine a support system, the energy, the enthusiasm that will bond everyone together in the family and the community and allow a student to complete college. It is so genius. So beautiful. It makes me so happy. I was thinking about being a teacher. Can you imagine your students coming with their dad or their grandmother or their mom? How much fun that would be. And the celebration at the end when everyone's been successful, I just think it is such a great rethinking of like, we're trying to equip our first generation college students to be successful. Well, you know how they got this far? 
They have communities and people who love them and press them forward. And so what better way to teach first-generation parents of first-generation students what it's like to go to college than to say, you should come to college. You should come to college with your student. Join us, yeah. I love it so much. Well, I love it. Rachel, as we talk about change and opportunity, like transitioning from thinking about change in, in terms of threat to change in terms of opportunity, that's yeah. exactly what they're doing. So it's so awesome. So I don't know. I know that not every school can do that. I realize that. But I will also say it is a perfect example of, you know, Sherry Woosley, who is always so smart, was talking about the difference between um, integration into a community. You have to be integrated here. Right. Leave everything behind. You have to get integrated and they got to learn the rules and they've got to that versus like you belong here we have a place for you you should have a sense of belonging and the way we do that is we include your family and your community and we think about not what we need you to do but what you need you to do and i love what he said about like hey it's for everybody you just have to work hard that's all again that's the only barrier yeah if you believe in this work then yeah that's right Right. And do you want to, you want to have one person in the family who has new credentialing and a, and a degree, or do you want to have three? Can you imagine? Well, it reminds me of graduation ceremonies that I've been a part of where a grandmother and and grandson graduated the same year and how, you know, that was a, a big celebration in that ceremony for them to walk up together. And so it just makes perfect sense. I can think of so many of our schools where for, for the right population they serve, this, this just makes sense, you know, for them to think about it that way. But it's so, it was so beautifully done. I love the, you know, I love the, hey, we're going to have a college visit day. We're going to spend time, we're, you know, and then we have this uh, surprise that is, that is more than anyone would imagine. It's just yeah. such I honestly think we can do, we could do a whole hour on this because I'm just thinking about siblings, right. And what it means, like I got to accept it to college and you can come with. And I just, there's so many elements of that that are well thought out and really, and Matt, the thing that ties all of this together is this compassion and generosity to say, I see the potential I'm not going to tell you like, yeah, you have to do all these things because it's the way we've always done it. I'm just saying like, I see potential and we want to figure out how to leverage that. Right. So good work. It's great. It's great. Okay. So we need to talk about change as oh, I do. No. Oh, sorry. Okay. Shoot. I was, I have been doing so well. Okay. And that is the state of the union. That is the state of the union. Yeah, job, I, think, I think maybe when we do these, if you could just have a cue card that you could hold up for me, that would be super helpful. <laughs> so I won't forget. Everybody who joins us in the podcast will just think I remembered, but they won't know that you're actually like this. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So let's move on to change. I want to, again, remind us that for some people, change is very overwhelming and scary. And the reason we have picked it for our 2022 um, theme is because we want it, we want to use it to alleviate this feeling of being overwhelmed, of doing too many things. 
it is a compelling time for us to change because over the last two years, we've just collected a bunch of hats and duties and here, we're just going to keep doing this stuff. And I tell you every week that I think people are really exhausted and we have to address it so that we can live sustainable lives in higher education. So that's the goal as we're looking at change. How can we imagine a sustainable, um, satisfying future where we're being productive, but also not feeling overwhelmed? And I think so many times, you know, so as you think big change, you're thinking, well, that's going to come from the top. I, I have to wait and be told what the change is going to be. Yeah. And, and we're kind of talking about that, sure. But really, we're talking about for your area, for the things that you actually have some influence on. Mm-hmm. how how to approach change right and yes. it's because really- i think so many times change can be overwhelming um and and kind of uh what we're used to is someone just telling us these are all the things that are going to happen these are all right. the changes that are coming right and so it's a really good point because you and i primarily are applying um, the theory of change to schools specifically about retention. And I'm going to tell you why that's a place where it's just such a powerful way to think about things. Um, so we, we think about this in terms of retention and student success, but everybody's in charge of something. You can be in charge of the tutoring center, the career center. You can be in charge of how you do advising or student activities or, right. You have something that you can say, I want to, create a future vision of how I want this to be. And I want to never forget. I'll never forget. We were on a campus and we, we were talking about retention change and the, and the head of the bookstore came to us and said, thank you. I have never seen my job that way that I, that I can make that difference in the students' lives, the way you're describing. Yeah. And so it is powerful. It is, where are you and what do you have influence over? And I think it's a really good example of, I was thinking mad about the school that we went to that was so weary because it was like, they're cutting constantly every year. They don't make their numbers and they're cutting their, and their friends are getting fired and they're cutting and they're cutting and they're so tired. And we had to write a report for the president and we're like, Hey, everybody is weary. And it's such a great example of what we've experienced in COVID. People are weary and the change on that campus from, we didn't make our numbers. We're going to have to cut two more positions, right? So you're talking to the CFO and the president and they're like, we're, you, they don't know this, this room that I'm in with all of the practitioners as we're trying to work on early alert and holistic and all that kind of stuff. But they're telling you like, Hey, they don't know this, but we're about to this afternoon announce that we have to cut two positions. And you're like, well, how many more, how, what's the change in retention that's going to make it so you don't have to do that? How many students do we have to find and retain? And I, and, I forget. And we, weren't, we weren't, we weren't, we weren't just talking about freshman retention. Like, right. give me how much money you realize, you know, that's eight students. Yeah. So they said, can you find eight students? And we're like, yes. And that's the shift. We're going to change from you're at the mercy and you're weary and good luck. And you never know when the other shoe is going to drop to, Hey guys, we're going to make some changes. Here's what we're going to do. Here's the vision. Here's the strategy. Here's why it's important. Can you find eight students on your campus? So you don't have to be in survival mode anymore. And they're like, 
eight students, like I'll, I'll give you 15 already that I know if we did something with, we could probably make a difference. And they did. They found eight students plus. Oh, way over. I mean, yeah, yeah. it changed everything, but it was empowering. I think the, the fun thing about that, and as I think about this kind of opportunity focused change, what happened at that school is it started to be a vision. So if we focus on student success, then all of that weariness can go away. So yeah. um, we start to grow and we are, we do have influence on that. This isn't just wait for enrollment and hope they made the numbers yeah. and all that, but it, but it became empowering to that. Every single person in that room, when I came back meeting with the CFO, came back to the room and said, here's your number. And I, and I upped it, I, I think from eight to 12. I said, can we find 12? Well, there's like 12 people in the room. Can you find one, each of you, yeah. a student who otherwise would have slipped through the cracks? And, and so it's a great model of saying change is a place to, to flip from, this is a disaster. What are we going to do to what's the vision, vision for the future and how are we going to impact that for good? Right. So you can apply that to whatever you're in charge of, but we're going to be talking for sure about um, retention. So you remember that as we've talked about managing change, we talked a couple of weeks ago about one difficulty is complacency. So just feeling like, like in that room where they're just complacent, they're sad and they're depressed, but they're like, well, there's nothing to be done. So I guess we're just going to, and what you did when you came into the room and you're like, Hey, 12 students, can you do that? We won't, no one will get fired. If you can do 12 students, like urgency. Yes, we can. Yeah. Like, let's go out. Let's make a plan. Let's find them. So the very first thing of managing change is that urgency piece. Also build a team. So you and I talked about like Rachel doing a thing versus a coalition of smart people who are doing what they need to in order to be successful, totally different experiences, right? Yeah. This is, this is the culture versus this is a person. Yeah, exactly. So the next piece that we're going to talk about is developing a vision. Um, and I want to talk about how you know what your core values are and how you tie, the, tie that to your strategic pieces and all of the kind of process for that. And remember, this is within your group. So you've identified your people and now you're going to start talking about a vision. But I'm curious, Matt, if you have reflections on why is a vision important? Like, why do we have to do this thing? Can't we just kind of change? Why do we have to have this thing that we're working towards, this big picture vision um, as we're managing change? Well, I mean, vision for me is, is you know, it's the why. And it, and it is the, so vision kind of sets up, starts with the why, and it, and it talks about the what we're going to do and then the how we're going to do it, but the but the power in that. When I think about vision, it is we could all just sit here and be happy with our endowment and the resources, the buildings, the things that we have, and just keep going along. Or we can be very mindful about here's here's where we are. Here's the opportunity. We have so many resources to get there. Yeah. So to to me, the power of vision is. Um, I don't want a team of people who like complacency and kind of languishing around. I don't think it's healthy for us. And, and also there's too much to do in higher education. There's a lot of great work. Every single one of those stories that you talked about, you know, even the school that messed up and sent the wrong scholarships, 
to think, well, no, these are students who, what if we did this thing? So to me, vision is, is um, it's just powerful for aligning resources to improve. Yeah. I was reading an article today about the difference between glue and grease for vision. And it's really similar to what you said about like the glue is like, what is like our historic, our history, the good things that we do. And some people like to live in the glue. They're like, this is what we're doing. This is what we've done. This is where we are. Why are you laughing at me? (laughs) Yeah. I I can't imagine. Sick. Right. And then there's the grease, which is like, but what's next? What's the next problem we're going to solve? How are we going to move forward? What are we going to do? And so thinking about how, Yes, we embrace, I think, especially in higher education, we embrace our history and we come from long heritage and we've always done things this way and that's the glue. But then this change that's being sort of thrust upon us because of COVID and all of the things that are going on is grease to move forward and solve problems for different groups of students and different, you know, cohorts and and populations. And so I love that. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll remember that. That's sticky. Yeah. Glue and grease. There you go. Okay. So when we're talking about a vision, I think a really important piece, and again, we're, we're applying this institutionally when we're talking about retention, this is institution wide, but for whatever you're in charge of the first thing, when you're looking at vision is you're, you're trying to identify your core values. What are the things that are the most important to you? And so a really easy way to figure that out is to see where you spend your resources. Where do you spend your time and your money? Uh, And thinking about iconic practices, like this is a thing that our institution does or that our office does that tells you what our core values are. So I was telling you earlier, like there's all these companies where they have a thing They have a six-page memo that they have to learn how to write because their core value is good thinking and clarity. And so it's just everybody knows in this huge institution, we have six-page memo meetings and it, the underlying value of that is that we think well and that we know how to write really well. So that would be an example. Yeah. Did you have something to add to that? No. Okay. I was thinking about, this is a silly example, but I think it's fair. Um, At Ferris, we have unsolved mystery Fridays. (laughs) We do. And it's an iconic practice where everybody is invited to join our Zoom because we're all across. Any of any of you who want to join. No, don't say that. No, don't say that. Okay. But our whole team comes together. I send out the like case study beforehand. Everybody does their work. And then we all come prepared to talk about it. We all have different resources. We talk about it. We're trying to solve the mystery. Okay. Here's why I bring it up because a core, I mean, if you want to use that as an example of core values at Ferris, we are, we are deep thinkers. We love to understand complicated problems So we love to like get all the information and do all the research and try to figure it out. Also, we like each other's brains and we're not often duplicated. So when we have eight different people in the room, everybody is bringing a different perspective, which is how we like to work where we have a great team. Also, we have so much fun. It's great to spend time with each other on something that is not solely focused on the business. That would be an iconic practice 
where if you were a fly on the wall and you watched us doing that, you would understand, understand something right about our, our culture, our, the way that we interact with each other and the things in our sure. Absolutely. So one really interesting thing is to think about how do you, like, what are the things that help you identify your core values? What are the places where you're spending your time and your money, right? Okay. And then after you've done that, that's going to really help you shape your vision moving forward. Here's what's important to us. So here's what we're going to do. So coming out of something like Unsolved Mysteries, where I'm trying to identify what is our corporate culture, you know, one of our goals, one of our vision pieces for this year is we want to keep our best team and we want them to thrive. That comes out of what I understand about our team, given this iconic practice that we have. And so it's a really helpful way to then move forward and say, okay, then what are we going to do in order to to leverage that? Um, Also, Matt, sometimes you'll have an iconic practice that you're like, this is crazy town. Why are we doing this? Because we actually don't value that. Like this is a remnant of something from a long time ago, but it's not important anymore. And so identifying those things and saying, we're going to change, we need to change that because it's not representative, right? Okay. And then as you're thinking about your vision, you and I were talking about these two questions, which I think are so clarifying. The first one is about big vision. So we identify our core values and then we move to big vision. And this is within your coalition. You say, well, what if, right? Don't tell me it's, you can't and all the obstacles and all the resistance. No, just say, what if we could become a premier institution to support first-generation students. What if we could, right? Um, I think you had I mean, a what? I would go. I would go bigger than that. I know you would. <laughs> I would just say, what if every first-generation student we enrolled graduated? What if? Yeah. So all all the things like what Paul Quinn's doing, right? So. What if they all graduated? Well, that's hard. We can't guarantee. Okay, well, how do we improve it? Yeah. What if we invite their parents or a sibling or two other family members? to? So, oh, well, so you've moved on be- to what is it going to take, which is our second question. <laughs> but, but let's go back to the what if. And I, because I think for every single one of our schools, where, wherever you are, your office, you just think about like, what is a thing that would just be remarkable yeah. for, for your students, for your school? What's a remarkable outcome that, yeah. that then you can, you can talk about because you've changed lives? That's so, to me. I'm, yeah. I was thinking about when you did your advisor um, surveys, like every student filled out a survey on your advisor. So the what if there is, what if students were a hundred percent satisfied every time with the advising that they received from us. What if, right? Okay. Well, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, is there a bigger what well, if? Well, we where the reality of where we were is what if it's 60% satisfaction, which is the reality of that office. It was bad. Yeah, but and that's not dreaming. Your goal was 100%, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, so there's two, I'm just saying there's two sides to that. I mean, on the other side of the, what if, what if, what if we graduated zero, we would feel terrible. If we graduated zero first gen students, we would feel terrible. So let's flip it. 
is where I where my brain goes, Rachel, because because the problem I was trying to solve was right in front of us, sixty percent satisfaction in in advising, which is crazy. So. Yeah. Sure. Okay, I mean, well, it is a fair it is a fair conversation to say to your team, what if we get a D in our rating for what we're doing? And hopefully <laughs> your team would be like, that's awful. Let's don't not. ever ask me that. Right. <laughs> How would you feel, Matt, if you got a D on the yeah, that would be okay. Thing that you're responsible for. Yeah, yeah. no. Okay. So this vision of what if, and I like it because you and I have a little bit of conflict about this because you're always what ifing. And I'm like, no, that's not possible. We can't graduate everyone. And you're like, but what if we could, let's just pretend for a second that we could do this thing. Well, if that's what you're shooting for, you're definitely, I mean, it's okay. If you miss it, what if you only get, what if you're shooting for hundred and you only get 96? Could that be okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I love in that team just saying, let's just pie in the sky. What if we could make college um, affordable for everyone? Or what if we could, and, and then let's take it, take it smaller. What if we um, had all of our students employed by the time they graduated? That's my career goal. That's the career that's goal. A, right? That's a great one. Yeah. Okay. So in that question, we are trying to imagine what is the vision? What are we driving over, like towards? What are we pressing forward against? What is the vision for the work that we're doing? And then we move on to the question, which is what would it take? Okay, what if we want this thing? What would it take for us to get there? How do we get there? The big how. Yeah. And it's, I like, what does it take? Because when you talk about that in a team, so when, when I'm resistant, cause you're like, Hey, Rachel, let's do this crazy town thing. And I'm like, we can't do that thing. And you're like, okay, well, what would it take for us to do that crazy town thing? What happens in my brain is the move from resistance. We can't do that crazy town thing to like, okay, well, let's pretend like we're going to do it. We totally can't do it. But let's pretend like we were going to do it. What would it take for us to do that? Well, we would need more people. We have to get more efficient. We have to um, have more resources. We've got to solve barriers. We've got to, right? Here's all of the things that we do. And you get me on this every single time. (laughs) I can tell you eight different times where you're like, Rachel, we should do this thing. And I'm like, we totally can't. And you're like, what if we could, what would it take? And then I solve the problems. And then I come to, you know, 15 years later and I'm like, how do we do all of these things? Because we shifted from that's impossible to what would it take for us to accomplish that thing? Let's just talk through the problems we have to solve. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that core values, what if, what would it take to, and then again, institutionally, that's a big conversation and you have your group of people and we were saying, this is the place because we're about to talk about talk, um, delivering the vision. So how you talk about it with everybody else, but this group where you are saying, what if, and what would it take? You better be real short up in your group, right? You better <laughs> be very confident. Everybody said all the reasons it's not going to work. And then we address them and we have a good plan and we have unity and we're all on one page. Because when you introduce it to other people, you know, it's like being a parent. It's like, you better be on the same team. 
Because when you tell your kid, this is what's going to happen. If there's any sort of wiggle room in there, like mom doesn't really love this, but dad wants to do it. So she's saying you're toast, right? (laughs) They're going to find the ways to poke holes at that. And then you're going to be like, oops, we didn't do a good job of, of, um, we, you and I were talking about like courting the curmudgeons, right? Do you want to talk about that piece? Well, I just think it's so important. And, and as we talk about, so moving into how to communicate this vision, the big what if. And so let me back up and just say, Rachel, having, there's a lot of, so there's actually a book on the power of two and, and the idea of having the complimentary where you might have someone who's like me and, and, and thinks in terms of like the, the big what if, and you're like, Matt, I'm with you, but it's going to be really hard. Why? Let's talk through that. The power of two to be able to, okay, let's lay it out and understand what, what we have to overcome there. But then there, we talked about last time, the curmudgeon is so important for understanding um, the, the difficult conversations you have to come over, uh, you have to address. And yeah. so um, the, the idea of inviting critique being, so I was always grateful for the curmudgeon I had a, a great relationship with because he just, he would just tell me all the ways that it was dumb or wrong, or why would we waste our time on that? And I'd say, well, help me understand why you're so against it. And, and so what he laid out for me though, was these are the arguments. I don't care who on campus, you know, no one's going to outdo him. Yeah. Uh, Here's what you're going to face, right? I'm going to, I'm going to represent. Yeah. (laughs) So if I have that understanding of this is the worst I'm going to face. So I have to be geared up and ready for that. Um, so inviting the curmudgeon, inviting critique, that's an important part of this kind of transition from going, going from the what if to the, the big what if to the how we're going to do it, because they're going to bring up things that you would never have (laughs) imagined. Like, how's that a barrier? (laughs) They'll be the barrier unless you have a smart plan to overcome it. Yeah. So it's so important because the next step after we've done created urgency, created our coalition, come up with the vision, and then we're going to tell people about the vision. And you and I were saying like, this is the first place where sort of the not inner ring, but outer ring is going to be able to critique what you've done. And oftentimes there's so much resistance. And I want to talk about that. I was thinking about, um, a church where they made a very specific change and they articulated the vision on the team that was like in charge of articulating the vision. Like they all agree. So now we're going to introduce this to the congregation. And so the team is up on the stage talking about why we made this decision and like they think they're short up and in unity and whatever they're going to do. And one of the guys on the team is like, nope, that's not true. Basically like shook his head. And while they're explaining what's good, he, he was basically like, I don't agree with this. I think it's stupid visually. Right. So it's why you got to be real sure that everybody's on the same page and listen to them because it is a downfall when you're introducing this vision to have, we talk about that coalition that you've built 
they are the role model of the behavior that is expected in response to this vision. So they need to be like, hey, I was cautious too. I was nervous. Here's what we talked about. Here's why we made this decision. They can't stand up on the stage while you're telling people about your vision and be like, that was, I think it's stupid. Like nobody listened to me about this. It's done. Well, that's a great example of not really having a clear understanding of the dynamic there because I wouldn't have invited him on stage, you know, in, the, in that deal. Like, I know that you're really resistant, but we've, but yeah. we've made this decision. So. Yeah, it's pretty tricky. Okay, so when it comes to communicating the vision, you want to be thinking about um, every vehicle possible to communicate because it takes a long time for people to catch the vision, to really understand it, to internalize it, to know what it means. And so, you know, Cotter talks a lot about like, say it a thousand times. Say it at the beginning of every meeting, help everybody understand this is why we're doing this thing. So Rachel, I'm, I'm going back to that example. And, and so you have some disagreement with me not inviting him on the stage. What I saw him do was play to his constituency. Okay. So, so in that scenario, you'll have people on your campus who they have a strong opinion and, and they want to look like, you know, there's, they have a constituency that who are behind them. And I think that, so in big change, it's, it's wise to understand who those groups are. And even if the biggest curmudgeon is not coming onto your side, maybe you pull aside someone who's best friends with that curmudgeon in that, in that constituency to be able to say like, Hey, can, can we have a reasonable conversation? These are the things I'm afraid of. And if this happens, Here's what we lose out on, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I think there's a lot of ways to think about how you're going to manage resistance because it's definitely going to be there. It's and it comes out of sure. a lot of different reasons, like fear or they're not educated. And I think next, maybe not next week, but the week after, we're going to be talking about different methods for managing resistance. So how you can use education or how you can use coercion or whatever to try to manage that resistance. But one really big piece um, that I want us to think about today is identifying situational factors that are going to help you understand how to then launch this vision forward. So one one piece is like, how urgent is our situation? Like, we have to make a decision right now or our school is going to close. We have to make a decision right now or we're going to have to fire three more people, right? So one really big piece is like, it is a luxury to be able to manage the long game, to build consensus, to help people understand, to educate that. Like, that's the way, obviously, that you want to do it. But one situational thing you're thinking about is how much time do I have in order to build the team and build the, the kind of come along with me um, versus like, sorry, we have to do it right now, Right. Right. And, and I think that that's what kind of threw us into the spin of COVID. You think about, I mean, there was no option. Yeah. We just have to do this right now. And if, if you want to be on board, you got to get moving. And, and so I do think that, you know, timing has a huge impact on how thoughtful, how much uh, um, collaboration you can build or yeah. support you can build for it. So. And understanding that people are like, oh, that was an emergency versus, 
there's no good reason. This is not an urgent situation. I don't know why you're trying to move so fast. I think the biggest, the biggest challenge with, with uh, opportunity change is that, is that it doesn't have that pressure of a threat. Yeah. Meaning, well, why do we have to do that right now? Like yeah. what, what if we just wait a year and just, we can think about it a little bit longer. Right. Yeah. And so um, that's one of those things where it's, you know, opportunity driven change tends to um, get passed over. And you see this year over year where, where a school will just say, Oh, we're, we're kind of delaying the, the redesign of this building or, or this program. And well, Matt, it's interesting. It makes me think of one of the barriers to upstream thinking, which is tunnel vision, which we were saying like tunnel vision is I don't have time for that right now. So when it is not urgent and you're just making a choice about, do you want to address this today? The answer is almost always no. I don't have time for that right now. Right. I got a lot of other things and that's not on the list. And so I was saying to you, the difference between being good at applying change theory to a school, we go to a school and we're like, hey, there's some things that have to change. We're going to help you manage resistance. Here's what we're going to do. The difference between that and you and I were saying, taking a minute to be like, hey, what about for us in our professional lives, in our personal lives? Let's not say I don't have time for that today. Let's make that a priority and say, what is our vision and how are we going to manage change? Those are two very, very different things. And yeah. so the luxury that we have when we go to a school is we get to, we do get to hold space for that school and say, hey, right now is the time where we're going to deal with it. You can't put it off because we're here and we're going to talk about it versus how people tend to be in their real life, which is I've got a bunch of stuff on my plate and I don't have time for that right now. So holding space personally and professionally to say, what are the changes and what is the vision I think is incredibly important. Sure. Um, also thinking through, this is a really key element when you're thinking about situational factors, who has the most accurate information about the changes needed. That is really vital because so many times if you're not being careful about gathering the right information and getting the right people on the team, then somebody has information that would have been helpful to you yesterday, but you're just going to like tell them the plan. And there's going to be like, well, here's seven things you didn't know. So that's a dumb plan. And then all of your work is going to be totally destroyed. <laughs> right. So um, there are so many examples of this where I, I think I said the other day, I was showing one time our software to a president, like showing all of the, here's how you find students and you connect with them in the case management and the collaboration and the measurement. And the president's like, that's so much work. And I was <laughs> like, but it is like, that's actually what these people do. And so if you're making cuts or you're saying as the president, like, we don't need software, we're going to change. We're going to get rid of that without accurately understanding what that software is doing and how it's supporting people you're going to be met with a lot of resistance. It's something that you really have to consider. Okay. So thinking through resistance, how urgent is it? Um, who has the most accurate information? What kind of resistance do you anticipate? Who do you think that that's going to come from when you start to share your vision? Um, and then just making sure you're using a lot of different ways to communicate that. So next time you and I are together, we're going to talk about the ways, the specific methods for managing resistance um, and give some really great examples of how we have done that and seen that. I can't wait to hear what you think my number one method 
of distance. Okay, I will keep that for next time we're together, but I'll think about it. Um, Also, you're going to talk about physical evidence uh, of these changes we're making. How do we use tangible physical evidence to kind of suggest to people, this is not just what we've always done. We're going to make some changes here. So that's going to be so. So as a lead up to next time, so I don't know when that's going to be in two weeks or three weeks or when, when we talk about physical evidence, when you think about big vision, big what ifs, I'd love to hear from, from our friends joining us about the best example of how that was communicated physically. And yeah. you think about like, when I walk into that building, it's clear to me what the future is going to be or, yeah. you know, yeah. um, how, how is that conveyed? The big vision. Um, so, so what are the action items, Rachel? Okay, so your action items are: what if big vision in your in your coalition? We have some urgency. What if? What is the big vision? The second one is: what would it take? So, talk through with your team. How could we accomplish that? And then also make sure that as you're thinking through that, that you have built unity in that coalition, and that you are sure that everyone's perspective has been heard and that you are continually driving to convert the curmudgeon. So you can have have him on stage with you, not shaking his head. And then also, um, we'll talk more about this in in a couple of weeks, but this idea, plan to communicate your vision a thousand different ways. Physically, what are all the mediums? What are the vehicles? Where can you put it so that people see it so that they have it in front of them? I was thinking, Matt, about, you know, years and years ago when we were at a conference and someone was like, who knows the mission of their school? And you knew it. And the guy's like, literally, that has never happened. I mean, he was old. He's like, I've been doing this for a long time. I've never had somebody. Yeah, Yeah, I've never had somebody who knew the mission of their institution before. And so how do we communicate that in such a way that yeah, he's pretty shocked. everybody knows. And you made $20. Good work. Did. Great. So, all right, friends, things are changing. We can move from surviving change to thriving in change. And so um, just keep keeping on. You're doing a great job, but this is really a time for you to be able to hold space and think about how you want to do things differently so that we can have um, sustainable uh, professional lives and also personal lives as well. Thank you guys for joining me. Yeah, good to spend time with you. We'll see you later. Bye.